This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. Quote, The code of tribal wisdom says that when you discover you are riding a dead horse, the best strategy is to dismount. In law firms, we often try other strategies with dead horses, including the following. Buying a stronger whip. Changing riders. Saying things like, this is the way we've always ridden this horse. Appointing a committee to study the horse. Arranging to visit other firms to see how they ride dead horses. Increasing the standards to ride dead horses declaring that the horse is better, faster, and cheaper, dead. And finally, harnessing several dead horses together for increased speed. End quote. And this is from trial judge Thomas Penfield Jackson. Thomas Penfield Jackson was born January 10, 1937, in Washington, D.C., and died June 15, 2013, in Compton, Maryland, at the age of 76. Now, Jackson had an Ivy League education from both Dartmouth and Harvard Law, He served in the Navy from 1958 to 1961 aboard a destroyer. He entered a private practice immediately following his Harvard Law School graduation in 1964 and was later nominated to the D.C. District Court by President Ronald Reagan in 1982. And possibly and probably the most interesting case that he tried was the U.S. versus Microsoft, which was a monopoly power case that you may remember. So the background to this is Microsoft was accused of having used its massive market position to not only favorably package its software with the Windows platform, but also to stifle competitors' innovations and products as they attempted to bring them to market. And as you may know, Jackson agreed with the U.S. on this particular and ruled in their favor in just 76 trial days. And not being a lawyer, this is not a law podcast, that has been described by others as the, quote, speed of light in antitrust business. And as I mentioned, antitrust legal proceedings can be painful and drawn out and laborious to get through. You can look back at the history of these types of cases and see just just a couple of examples that I was able to find is that New York... The state of New York took a case against IBM that took 13 years to try. And a similar case against AT&T for antitrust took about eight years to try. And some of these literally came down to lawyers reading individual letters and transcripts, entire emails, word for word, for the record, for the courtroom. And Jackson, being a smart guy, obviously with a a high pedigree in education, wanted to avoid these things. And he wanted to learn from and avoid those previous mistakes that other judges had made. So in the very literal term, learning from the mistakes of others, which is part of the reason I knew I liked Jackson when I read this quote. And so he took the opening statements for this case on October 19th, 1998. And this quote came... Uh, a few months later, in, on February 16th of 1999. 
And shortly after this, there was a major recess many, many months before the trial resumed, I think in June of 99 and then wrapped up. So it may not seem like a lot of trial days here, but if you go back and look at the actual court transcripts, there are a number of days, multi-day recesses. So yes, 76 trial days to reach a verdict. However, many more days of total calendar time, uh, nearly, nearly an entire year of calendar time. And Jackson's entire purpose during this trial was to keep things moving. These things can get very litigious, and it it tends to unfairly favor the defendant for these things to take longer and longer. The jury starts to grow tired, the judge and all the various lawyers start to grow tired, and that is an actual tactic that's employed a lot of times by the defendant, is to just drag these things on and on and on until the point where almost nobody cares anymore. And this was a very public and very well-known and very well-documented trial because it held a lot of potential precedent for future cases. If Microsoft was found to be illegally using its market share to favorably package its software and also at the same time prevent its competitors from being able to release software, we wouldn't have what we have today. All of the bundling and all of the, as as most people call it, bloatware that you find on a lot of platforms was deliberately put there. Microsoft put its word processing and its spreadsheet and its presentation document or programs onto its Windows platforms and simultaneously made it difficult for competitors to be able to put them there. So there was a lot at stake in this case and it was very, very visible. And again, because Jackson didn't want this to turn into an eight, nine, ten year ordeal, he wanted to keep the proceedings moving forward. And so this quote comes in the afternoon following a lunch break and a particularly boring sequence of events. And I've gone back and read the transcripts for this day. If you care to look, again, it's we're talking about February 16th, 1999. You can go back and find the actual court proceedings put together by the court recorder. And they're very, very boring at this time. They're, what they're doing on this day in particular with a witness on the stand is they are reviewing a trip report. So if you've ever traveled, you know that you come back and you file a travel claim type of type of thing. That's what this is. This is a trip report with some comment with some verbiage in it that is that the US attorneys um the the prosecution is presenting as evidence early evidence of anti-competitive behavior and there's arguments back and forth between the lawyers about whether this is too old to be admissible i think it's from the early 90s so they're saying well this trial doesn't include those dates this is too far in the past to be useful again exceptionally boring the kind of stuff that lawyers will quibble over in a courtroom, but a judge who's trying to keep this from turning into a snooze fest wants to keep moving. So I'll read the quote again, and this isn't, this is Jackson speaking to the lawyers. And remember, we've now come back from lunch. We're six months into this trial at this point, basically, and five or six months into the trial. And, and the judge, Judge Jackson is trying to keep this trial moving along. So he says the following quote, and again, I'll read it for you so that you can hear it. Imagine this in the context of a courtroom where the U.S. is up against Microsoft for antitrust. Quote, The Code of Tribal Wisdom says that when you discover you are riding a dead horse, the best strategy is to dismount. In law firms, we often try other strategies with dead horses, including the following. Buying a stronger whip. Changing riders. Saying things like, This is the way we've always ridden this horse. Appointing a committee to study the horse arranging to visit other firms to see how they ride dead horses, increasing the standards to ride dead horses, declaring that the horse is better, faster, and cheaper dead, 
and finally, harnessing several dead horses together for increased speed. End quote. Now, aside from being humorous, obviously this is said tongue-in-cheek, there's a lesson that's valuable, and it's valuable beyond just the courtroom, which is why we're talking about it here today. So let's take a look at the various things that Jackson says that people do in law firms, and I would argue in other walks of life as well, when they find that they are riding a dead horse. He talks about buying a stronger whip. Well, that implies there's a problem with the horse, right? The horse is lazy. So let's buy a stronger whip. We'll whip that horse into shape. Remember, again, of course, listener, not to insult your intelligence here, this is already a dead horse. This is something that is known to be dead. Whipping it is obviously counterproductive to moving forward with life. But sure, let's buy a stronger whip, because the horse is clearly lazy and we need to do something about it. We need to remotivate the dead horse. We could change the rider. Well, doesn't that make perfect sense? Clearly, the reason that the horse isn't moving is not has nothing to do with the horse itself. It has nothing to do with the fact that the argument or the whatever is dead. It has to do with the fact that the person presenting it is the problem. And you actually do see this in courtrooms. If you have a dead horse, if you have a lost cause, or you have something that is bound for failure, well, what's a better idea than to pull the, the original lawyer off and put somebody else on? Or let's bring in the ringer. Let's bring in the person who can we're sure can get this dead horse moving again. So that's number two. The next one. This is how we've always ridden the horse. Well, okay, this is one of my favorite topics, and I should probably do an episode about this at some point, but this is a logical fallacy. Um, This is the logical fallacy of appeal to tradition. So this is literally an appeal to something that has always been done a certain way, and therefore it it calls to that tradition and says, because this is tradition, this is how we must continue to do it. You could argue that this is a this is a problem with the rider, or maybe this is a problem with the rider's management in this case, senior partners at a firm or something like that. This case, this argument, this legal approach is not working. Well, let's keep doing it because this is how we've always done this. This is how we've always handled antitrust cases. So let's continue to do it that way. It's a logical fallacy, and it's called an appeal to tradition. And you'll notice that technically all of these, if you take them on their face, are completely illogical, right? Buying a stronger whip doesn't make a dead horse go any faster. Changing the person that's riding the dead horse doesn't make the dead horse go any faster. Saying this is how we've always ridden the dead horse does not make the dead horse go any faster. Same thing with appoint a committee to study the horse. Well, this implies, again, that there's something wrong with the horse. Clearly, if we get a second opinion on whether the horse is dead or not, we'll come to a different conclusion, and the horse will magically just get up and start walking away. This can also be done in a less, slightly less obvious way, and that is by fi- trying to find new uses or value in something that whose original use or original value is no longer valid. This can be repurposing things, repackaging things, renaming something, calling it new and improved, those types of things, right? That's the kind of thing that you may find from, from this type of thing. Arrange to visit other firms. Well, again, this might be a slight against, say, the rider in this case. If we say that the rider is clearly the problem, but let's go see how other people ride their horses. Let's go see how other people ride their dead horses. Maybe there's somebody out there that knows how to ride a dead horse better than we do, better than our rider does. Increase the standards to ride a horse. This is looking at the person who is riding the dead horse. Even if that person who's riding the dead horse says, look, I'm riding a dead horse. There's nothing I can do about this. This is the rider's management or senior partners or whoever saying, look, you just don't get it. You just don't understand. 
So we're going to increase the standards. We're going to we're going to bump it up a level. We're going to take it out of your hands and we're going to give it to somebody higher up the food chain with a little bit more experience, a little bit more savvy when it comes to this particular area. That's what we'll do. Reclassifying. So this is declaring that the dead horse is better, faster, and cheaper. Sure, this is a, this is a similar thing. This is repackaging, finding a new use. This is something that didn't work in one area. Well, let's try it in another area. Let's see if we can figure out another way to use this. And last, of course, and still equally lacking in utility, is harnessing together several dead horses for increased speed. I mean, how ridiculous is that? This is this is another logical fallacy. This is the sunk cost fallacy. This is doubling down or accessorizing, saying I have a dead horse, but if I put if I give it a a good brushing and make sure that its hair is combed out and that its tail is nice and and clean uh, and put new shoes on it, it'll be it'll be better. This is that's what this is. This is doubling down on work that you've already done, effort that you've already put into this. And of course, these are all illogical, and I'm sure they all fall into some manner of logical fallacy or some division of logical fallacy. They're all illogical, because the logical thing to do is to recognize that the horse is dead, to leave the dead horse, and to move on. Now, they all assume a knowledge that the horse is dead, which is, of course, painfully obvious to us, because that's how this entire thing starts. When one realizes that one is riding a dead horse. So that means you have to actually be self-aware enough to realize that you are on a dead horse. It should be painfully obvious, but when you're on the inside of some of these things, it's very hard to determine when something doesn't need, or when something is actually dead and doesn't just need more motivation or reclassification or revitalization with fresh blood from another champion of that, of that thing. So if that's the case, the first thing that we must learn to do ourselves is to recognize when the horse we are riding is actually dead. And this can be very difficult because I talk all the time about self-improvement, talk all the time about taking a strain and about doing the hard thing and about seeking self-improvement. At what point do we draw the line between this is an area where I can improve and should devote energy to improving? Maybe I do need a stronger whip or maybe I do need to talk to other people and see how they do this or something like that versus this is a dead end. This is something that is not going to come to fruition. This is something that is not going to manifest in success. And I'd be better off to cut my losses and move on. And I mentioned the sunk cost fallacy just recently. And that's the idea that the more time and more energy and more effort and more manpower and more funding that you put towards something the harder it is to walk away from. You've already put all of that into it, so putting a little bit more can't be a bad thing. And it's one of the most difficult logical fallacies to overcome in our own mind, especially when we are close to something. In the Marine Corps, we call this falling in love with our own plan. And it's a it's something that we are cautioned against all the time as leaders and planners, is every plan is imperfect, and the sooner you can recognize the imperfections of your plan and not vehemently defend that plan because it is your plan that you have fallen in love with and you think it is the best plan, the sooner you can internalize and capture others' inputs and improve that plan and hopefully make it even better. But horses, so regardless of whether this is a 
uh, a courtroom case bringing this back to Jackson and a lawyer who continues to beat and belabor the same point over and over and over again to no end. Or this is you working a job that is just a just a dead end that you are just miserable with. Or it's a family member who time and time again lets you down in one way or another. A friend who is not there when you need them. Or even simply a discussion or an argument with somebody. When you realize that you have a horse and that that horse is dead, rather than investing more time and energy into that, the wisdom, the tribal wisdom, says, put it down. Dismount. Dismount and leave the horse. Move on. Go find a new horse. Go buy a new horse. Go train a new, a new horse. Buy one, feed one, train one, and eventually you'll find that that horse actually leads you somewhere or has the potential to lead you somewhere. So as we close today's episode, I think the lesson for all of us is to identify what your horses are. They could be relationships. They could be arguments with family members. They could be friendships that have lost their luster and you've been clinging to them because of all the time and energy that you've put into them. And that's not to say that every horse that you have is dead. But there's probably one or two. And there's probably some that are in their dying days. And the question you have to ask yourself is, with the limited time and resources that you have, money, energy, emotional bandwidth, whatever, whatever term you want to apply, some combination of all of those things, is it worth trying to revive a nearly dead horse and certainly it can't be worth trying to revive a dead horse because that horse isn't coming back to life. So identify your horses today. Identify those things that are worth continuing to ride, worth continuing to invest in, and more importantly, the ones that are not. And then here's the kicker, and this is the hardest part. Dismount. Let it go. Let that horse go and move on to better things. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod, or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.